On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. It has since been taken offline by Open Stories, but you can now find an archive of all 15 episodes on chrisway.com slash O-T-O-S or on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. On the Other Side was a podcast project dedicated to discussing religious, post-religious, and religion-adjacent issues from a distinctly millennial perspective. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, On the Other Side, Millennials and Religion. You're back. Welcome back. We're happy to have you. As mentioned previously, we have three lead hosts, Blake Wright, Chris Way, and me, Michelle Ross. Sometimes we will be doing episodes together, and sometimes we will be doing individual episodes. Today is one such individual episode hosted by yours truly, and you are in for a treat. Today we begin our non-Mormon faith transition series with guest Carlos Noblesa Posas. Carlos was born and raised in New Orleans and grew up Catholic, and this is his story. Welcome, Carlos. Glad to have you. Hi, Michelle. Glad to be here. So you were born and raised in New Orleans, home of jazz, Mardi Gras, and Jambalaya. Is that right? (laughs) Is Jambalaya from New Orleans? It is indeed, by way of West Africa, I think. But um, And do you you like Jambalaya? (laughs) I do. (laughs) Uh, I like it a lot. I wish I had the patience to make it. To cook it? Yeah, exactly. Wait, how long does it take? Um, if you go traditionally, it can sometimes be overnight. Um, oh my gosh! But I've I know right. I've got I found a crockpot recipe that I'm I'm gonna give a shot. Much but, better, uh, much yeah. better, <laughs> much easier. Exactly. Um, okay, so you were born in New Orleans and you were raised there. Is that right? Yes, correct. Okay, uh, so K through twelve. K through twelve. There. So, and you were born Catholic into a Catholic family. That's right. And both your parents were Catholic? That's right. We were all um, Catholic before we even knew how to crawl, basically. Um, You're baptized two to three months after you're born into the Catholic faith. So how how many siblings do you have? So I have an older brother. Um, he's about four and a half years older than I am. And then, um, ironically enough, my folks, uh, despite their vows and devotion, they split when I was two. Oh. And my father remarried many years later. So I have three younger siblings, um, the eldest of which is 11 years behind me. So I got to help raise them and watch them grow up in the Catholic faith as well. So did you live with your dad or your mom? I spent my school years with my mom and summers and Christmas, uh, Christmases with my dad. And so once they, once they divorced, you were both, or they were still both actively Catholic? Yes, um, during the school year, I'd spend my Sundays at church with my mom and my brother. This was in New Orleans. And then uh, on vacation in South Georgia, where my dad had decided to settle, I'd spend my Sundays in church, well, in mass as well. 
So tell me about your childhood, like through elementary school. What was so, that like? Um, it was, it was fun. Uh, hot because it was New Orleans and South Georgia. <laughs> yeah. But um, a lot, you know, typical, right? Um, school, after school activities, home for homework and then dinner. Um, and then Sundays, we would uh, go to mass at around noon. I can't recall exactly. I mean, what kid has an accurate recall of time, exactly what time it was. But uh, for as long as I can remember, I remember getting dressed up, meaning putting a shirt with buttons on it, wearing slacks and leather shoes, and heading to church, whether I wanted to or not. <laughs> and um, on top of that, because my parents chose to send me to Catholic school, I would, the, the most basic meaning behind that is that in my curriculum was religion. There was a so class that I went to every day. Uh, that was that religion. Taught religion. I remember pretty distinctly, I want to say it was second grade, um, where I was told that they, uh, someone, it could have been me, asked whether or not uh, they would whack bad kids with rulers across the knuckles. And um, <laughs> my teacher responded that, uh, not anymore. Uh, we're not allowed to. Uh -huh. was, was the phrasing. And then um, in middle school, it was not so much nuns anymore. It was people, lay people. Um, but still probably, a Catholic school. Definitely, yes. Still a Catholic school run by a lady named Sister Nicholas. So it, she was the principal. And then when I got to high school, um, it was, again, lay people. But the principal was a brother meaning he belonged to the Catholic order of the Christian brothers, um, which basically each of these orders within the Catholic church, um, it's founded by someone who is most likely now a canonized saint. So you have the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the Jesuits, right? Gotcha. Each of them was founded by a different leader of the Catholic faith. Um, this one happened to be founded by a Frenchman who first at least introduced to the Western world the idea of classroom teaching rather than private tutoring, which is up to his up to his point in history had been the norm. Just oh, private tutors for exactly. So he kind of he popularized it um in more ways than one. So, so he like popularized it in the world or just at, at least in the Western world, I want to say it's world? had its roots in France and then other, you know, neighboring countries took it on. And then by the time uh, America was colonized by the English and the French and the Spanish, uh, it had already kind of taken root. Okay. So mm -hmm. back when you were in elementary school and you were being taught by nuns, you had like, you had traditional schooling, math, English, history, all yes, that stuff. But then mm -hmm. every day you also had like a religious class of some kind. You, you got it. Textbooks, worksheets. Like one yeah, hour of the day? day or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one period. Guys, what would you guys like talk about during that? 
So we would talk about scripture, um, both in the Old and New Testaments. We would talk about, I want to say, I guess they would have termed it among themselves, among the teachers, sort of uh, lifestyle teachings. Um, what is a family? Um, how does a family relate to Christ and the Catholic Church? Um, kind of the, the, the history of the church, um, at least, you know, the parts that the nuns were proud of and, um, (laughs) or aware of, right. Or aware of, right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, and then, um, I think one of the big things that stuck out to me was the sacraments. And I, from what I understand, um, there's something of a parallel within the LDS church. Um, but you kind of go through what was your, what was the sacraments? So there's, there's, oh gosh, this is how lapsed I am. I think there's either four or five (laughs) sacraments that, um, a Catholic person goes through over the course of their life. The first is, uh, baptism or christening. The second, right. The second is, um, communion, right. Taking the Eucharist. The third is confirmation, which, I mean, we can get into that later, but <laughs> it's, um, you take on the, the role or the identity of a saint, more or less, and you uh, confirm that you do, in fact, continue to believe what you supposedly believed as a sleeping baby when you were christening. Sure, And sure. Then, <laughs> then after confirmation is... Um, what do you call it? Is marriage? Is marriage is considered oh. one of the sacraments? You know, and that's then, sorry. Go on. Yeah, no, you go ahead because the last one is I actually kind of want to save that one. That's probably it, my favorite. Is it death? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's called formally. It's called extreme unction. Um, okay. Taking from yeah, unction uh, having the root word in Latin of oil, because at your deathbed the priest anoints you with oil. Um, oh, okay. And that. Okay. As as he reads you your last rites, and last rites is how it's more commonly known. Yeah, that's so interesting because we don't call them sacraments, um, but yes, it's like rites of passage, definitely. Yeah, I again because I was a kid when I learned these, I almost related it and kind of still do to leveling up like a video game um, (laughs) when you're. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. You know, you, you gain this experience and then you move on to the like next level, which means you can, I guess, fight more monsters or discover more treasure. <laughs> <Stronger>. or, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can make cooler graphics. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so in the LES church, there's, you're blessed when you're a baby, but you're not baptized because you're not okay. considered old enough to, mm-hmm make those decisions yet and then you're baptized at eight and then for boys they receive like the priesthood or the power of god Mm -hmm. um at age 12 and and there's different levels of priesthood and then obviously for men and women there's going through the temple getting married um Mm -hmm. and i think you know i think as long as you get married in the temple and have kids you're going to be exalted so (laughs) is that kind of the last sacrament or the last yeah, like the, level <laughs> it's like the last right it's the ultimate rite of passage is getting okay. married in the huh. temple and All right. 
once you do that, you're kind of. And the exaltation is, is kind of the end goal for every. Yep. Woman. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So were you happy? Like at the school that you went to, did you feel as a child, were you happy? Were you, did you ever, I mean, it probably didn't even occur to you to think anything about there, the church when you were so young or did you? There was not yet. There was nothing else. Yeah. This it was, was like it. all you knew. Yeah. This was it. And for, again, for longer than I can remember, this is what I was taught. And the happiness that you ask about, I, of course, this is all in retrospect, but um, I felt like I was part of a group. I felt um, socially accepted so long as I believed in these things. Although I I have a question about that because you grew Mm -hmm. up in the South, which is heavily Baptist, Mm -hmm. heavily you know, the Bi- it's the Bible Belt. It's not right. necessarily known for Catholicism. Was that ever an so, issue? Um, it, it wasn't in New Orleans because New Orleans, oh gosh, they, well before the United States was founded, um, it was... Like a Catholic city? Catholic. Okay. Yeah, it was founded by the French, then taken over by the Spanish, then back to the French, and then back, and then finally to became a part of the United States. And the fact is, um, to this very day, you you when you set foot in New Orleans, when you drive around in the oldest part of the city, which meaning it was founded first, and it, to this day bears the name of the French Quarter, um, it feels you feel like you're in a European city gotcha. and specifically with Catholic iconography, um, the way the streets are laid out, um, everything. And so it was a bubble from the, the Bible belt that the South is known for being Interesting. for sure to the point where even when I got to eighth grade, which is just, that for me was high school. The, that's kind of the the standard. And I know it's strange to hear here, but um, in New Orleans, the vast, no, actually all, I, can't, I won't even say the vast majority, all of the Catholic high schools started in eighth grade. Oh, wow. So that's young. middle school. Yeah, exactly. So you're thrown in. I mean, you think it's bad being a freshman in high school. You're thrown in to that shark tank uh, <laughs> at eighth grade. And I remember when I got to eighth grade, um, of course, the just by nature, the, the, the pool of kids that you meet grows almost, you know, probably doubled. Um, for me, we could count on two fingers the kids in our class who were not Catholic. And we knew them by name and we would tease them relentlessly. Um, no, why were and, they going to a Catholic school? Was so it just in a um, good school at the time? Yes. So that's I was going to say. I entered in 1998. Um, at the time, the standard for excellence when it came to high school education in across the state of Louisiana was Catholic schools. Um, no surprise there, given that you know you paid money to go to them. Yeah. And in some cases, exorbitant amounts of money. Um, so with that kind of resource, then comes uh, quality education. 
So um, anyone who could afford to but wasn't necessarily Catholic would think twice about possibly sending their, their child to it. Now, did you have to pay just as much as a Catholic as you would a non-Catholic? If you weren't, yes. Yeah, so there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't any uh, discount, no, so to speak. No discounts? No, no discount. Because we get no that bill, at no. BYU. Like, if you're a, pra- a- if you're a practicing member, mm-hmm. you, your tuition is less than... If- oh, I, I can totally see that. So now there's something similar, very, very similar to that, in that um, if you go to a Jesuit high school, meaning it was founded by... Um, Ignatius Loyola, and I, the only reason I mention his name is because he, in the U.S., he went on to become known for three different universities across the country: Loyola University, New Orleans; Loyola University, Chicago; and Loyola University, Marymount. Okay. If you graduate, at least at the time, um, so I graduated in 2003. If you graduated from a Jesuit high school, which I didn't. Um, but I have a, a cousin who did, and you applied for a particular scholarship into one of the Loyola schools, you could earn that scholarship uh, after, among other things, proving your Catholic faith. Gotcha. So there is something very similar to what happens at BYU. Well, so when you were in high school in the Shark Tank, um, yeah. how how kind of... so. You had, you know, you had a pretty good childhood. Sounds like you were, you were fine in Catholicism. Totally. You know, didn't really think anything different. Did you feel the same as you moved into high school? I I felt even more strongly about it. I sought it out, so to speak. Um, I believed fully. I, in the Old Testament. That's what I was going to ask you. So Mm -hmm. are you taught that the church, that the Catholic church is, is true, like it's the only true church? Not explicitly, but yes. Um, You're taught principles of, um, (laughs) this has come flooding back to me from, um, I want to say, ninth grade religion class. So there's some um, principles about, or traits of the Catholic church. And, one of the goals uh, when, when we Catholic with a little C, so not Catholic with a big C Catholic with a little C meant that the church and its beliefs was universal so that young men and young women all over the world, no matter their background could join the church. Okay. So in that sense, it was universal. Right. And then on that foundation, the goal was to work towards, and I'm going to butcher this word, um, ecumenism or to, to become an ecumenical church. Um, and again, I may be garbling this because I, I haven't looked at this stuff in ages, but at least the way it was impressed upon me when I was a teenager was that the Catholic church had opened up its arms and was enthusiastically sweeping all of the other churches into its embrace towards the ultimate goal of having the Baptists and the Lutherans and the, all of the 
faiths that branched off after the Reformation, all of the Protestant faiths, uh-huh. join the Catholic Church somehow by working together and professing our faith. Every we would somehow convince everyone else that the one true, and this is kind of the insidious part of it. It turned out that universal didn't mean applying to everyone so much as the literal meaning one verse, right? There is only one faith. So, okay. So universal, when they say universal, sounds Mm -hmm. to me like all they mean is that anybody who wants to can join the Catholic church. Am I understanding that correctly? That, that is on the surface. And then if you dig deeper and I can remember the textbook pages are flashing before my eyes, it meant that it was the one true faith. Well, but that, that to me sounds like that's what they're saying with universalism. Like it's the one true faith, but anyone can come join it. Mm -hmm. So, because I'm guessing that you were taught in the Catholic church, like in order to go to heaven or to live with God, you had to Mm -hmm. be baptized. You had to, do these certain things, right? Absolutely. So what, okay. So, you know, there's, there's this belief in the church that the, that the church is true or it's the one true church. And is the Pope like God's mouthpiece on earth or, or how would you describe the Pope? So the, Pope, um, he is the descendant in a one straight line from St. Peter. Oh, as in a contempt, the contemporary of Jesus Christ. So, but he's not a literal descendant. He is Is chosen in that way. No, not a literal descendant, but his role is to continue that work that St. Peter started when he took the word of God, meaning because he was one of the disciples, right? Um, He took the word of God and was blessed with uh, the word. Oh gosh. Again, this is (laughs) piecing all this together, but um, the Sunday, Oh, Pentecost, that that's the date. Sorry. The Sunday after Jesus Christ was risen, Pentecost happened and all the disciples were, given the word of God, he was the one to lead them. And so he became the honorary, even though obviously there was no papal system back then. He was right. the honorary. Um, oh, sorry. The honorary leader. Yes. Okay. And it's again, so much of this is tied into it. I keep coming back to the Latin because it's, uh, that was the original language of the church, right? At least when in its first, uh, its first efforts to unify, right? So um, across the Europe, you know, what we now know as Western Europe. Um, and so it gave birth to what's called um, Petrarchan theory or discipline. Um, and whether or not this is actually ca- the case or if it was just a coincidence, the whole idea was that Peter came, the word Peter, the name Peter came from Petrus, meaning is the Latin for rock. So he was the rock of the church. The rock, yeah. So he was, yeah, the foundation upon which all other popes would build 
the Catholic Church. Okay, so as an adolescent in high school, you were a believer, like you believed the church, oh, yes. the Catholic I, Church was the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I, I believe. Oh, yeah. What I believed what? along the lines. I mean, if you plot data points, it was I believed every sacrament and I was doing my best to level up. I believe that the reason for baptism as a two or three month old was because I was born into the world with original sin, thanks to Adam and Eve. Why do you and, think that you as an adolescent or like as a teenager mm-hmm. were becoming, is it just like, you know, that's the time that you start developing your yeah. own identity and it's, you felt like mm-hmm. this is, I mean, what do you think kind of brought you to? I think it was um, partly it was social pressure, right? Um, laterally speaking, I mean, it was, uh, I would we would gather not only in addition to the mass that I would go to on Sundays where occasionally I would see my classmates, um, depending on whether or not we were neighbors. Right. Um, we also had chapel, what was called chapel during the school week. And our classes would go down to a chapel that and to this day, my high school, it's, it's, it raises money every year to update the chapel. It's a little room, a uh, place of worship within the school grounds. And you would step into the chapel with your religion class. And it was basically miniature mass. Um, How long was it? So the, when I was coming up, the average mass would last about an hour, hour and 15. Um, In high school, we were on the block schedules for, so our classes would last 45 minutes. So at most chapel would last 45 minutes. So it was this time to go, we associated and I, I'm sure this was deliberately we associated socializing with our classmates, with our peers, whether we were cutting up or, or listening intently um, or just chatting or giving input uh, or feedback on the faith. Um, we associated it with being with our friends. With, okay. Yeah. Because, you know, and so it gave, it lent a sense of sense of belonging, right? Yeah. I mean, we that, had that something, I, I don't know. Have you ever heard of seminary? LDS seminary. <laughs> I have, but I'm not clear. So, so it's it's kind of like that. It's a little bit similar where in junior high and high school, we can do, well, it's actually just high school, I guess, ninth grade through 12th. Um, you can take one class. You can be excused from school for one class to go to like a religion class. And it's called seminary. Um, and it's like four years okay. of religious classes. And you go like... But- every day. So it's just interesting, but okay. Go on. So there's a social aspect of it. And then of course there's, so that I call that kind of lateral peer pressure. Uh, And then there's the pressure that came down from my parents and their parents before them and their parents before them. Um, And it was, was there like a spiritual aspect to it at all? Like how did the Catholic church, define like did they say you can have a personal relationship with god did you pray oh, a lot did you feel that you did yeah they in fact they insisted that you have a personal relationship with god and did um, you feel like you did i did i when i was a kid i would literally get down on my knees and clasp my hands at night before going to bed shut my eyes and pray 
And it almost always one of my favorite things, I guess, at the time, too, and kind of looking back at it, too, was I, I kind of I chuckle is everything in the Catholic Church from mass to the sacraments to prayer follows a script. A very, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say rigid, but there's a very rote element to it. So even prayer, you wouldn't ever just prayer. You would never just say like, please help me. I need help. Yeah. It was always in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, dear God. And this wasn't necessarily, this next part wasn't necessarily, I mean, it was taught to us by our teachers. It was essentially um, God isn't a genie, is not a genie that you can just rub the magic lamp and ask for things. So always start with thank yous, kind of counting your blessings. Um, and then, you know, keeping in mind, the next thing you would do would be uh, mention uh, either informally or by name people who are ailing or old or troubled or sick, etc. Um and then that, then after that, it's kind of like eating your greens before getting to dessert. Then you would bring to him any sort of turmoil in your own life. Okay. Um, which as, you know, a kid for me, turmoil when I was five years old was that my older brother wouldn't let me play Nintendo yeah. when his turn <laughs> was over. That was so, um, obviously it changed as I grew older and, uh, I would still pray. I would I wouldn't be on my knees at night. I'd be in bed. And um, I guess it was my earliest acquaintance with medita- what I now consider just meditation. Um, but even just another, I guess, a, a tangent related to prayer is there are packaged prayers, right? Ones that have been translated from the Latin into whatever language is common in your part of the world. Um, the... The rosary. The, the, so the rosary, right. So the, each bead of the rosary represents a different prayer that you say. Oh, okay. So um, there's the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and the Glory Be. Those are the three that stick out to me. Those are the major ones. And so even it always, it, this is kind of where I, uh, I started, let's say, um, questioning. So this was... The format and the routine was when... I was this in high school? To, this was in, I'd say, yeah, middle school. Let's say middle school was, and this was just a blip. I mean, I immediately brushed the thought aside, but we would stand at my grandmother's grave and say X number of our fathers, X number of Hail Marys, and X number of Glory Bees before placing flowers. Every time there was no variation. There was no, Hey, and my mom wouldn't stand there and say, Hey mom, we miss you. We love you. You know, look, this is your, this is your grandson. I side note, I never met either of my grandmothers, but this grandmother, my mom's mom, I never met her. And so this is your grandson, uh, your second, et cetera, et cetera. It was always get in, say your prayers, place the flowers, get out. Very and I always, that always struck me as strange. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was a ritual. And um, again, I dismissed it. I was like, that's kind of impersonal. Um, but I just dismissed it. I said, this is the way it's got to be. This must please my grandmother. And so I'm going to keep doing it. Um, and I found comfort 
in the memorization. I found comfort in the delivery of these prayers. And of course, at every mass and every chapel, this is what we did. And so it kind of reinforced that comfort. Well, and you know what? I actually, um, a while back, I was reading about meditation and different different kinds mm-hmm. of meditation. And they actually mentioned the rosary as a form oh, okay. of meditation because you're saying it's repetitive and you uh-huh. say something over and over and it actually can be, it's a form of meditation. Calming. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, to this day, my mother, when she's, um, when something stressful, a big life event is around the corner, uh, whether it's traveling domestically or abroad for one of us, either myself or my brother or herself, or, um, say a big exam was coming up or, um, um, I guess nowadays for me, it's when I perform, I'm an actor and anytime on the eve of a performance, my mom will shut the door in her bedroom, sit there with her rosary and go through the, shut her eyes and go through the prayers. So it calms her. And it calms her. Yeah. And at the end she attaches a request, you know, um, may Carlos break a leg. (laughs) break a leg exactly (laughs) yeah so okay so you as an adolescent in high school you were strong you're believing I'm really curious about the kind of messages that were coming to you as Mm -hmm. a youth as a teenager so for example like around things like sexuality morality alcohol What kind of, because I know in the Mormon faith, I mean, it is clear. We have a pamphlet that is quite long for youth. It's very explicit. I mean, there is to be no sexual activity of any kind, no thoughts, no, you know, morality right. is is a really big deal. No alcohol, no um, drugs, obviously. I mean, modesty, right. blah, blah, blah. You know, like, oh, just a lot of stuff coming at coming at you as a youth in the Mormon church, um, what it, what was it like in the Catholic faith as a teenager? So it, it was very similar in that everything began, I'll address um, substance abuse and use first. Um, your body is a temple. It was crafted painstakingly by God. And as a result, anything you do to pollute your body um, is sacrilege. That's how it was phrased. And this included, you know, alcohol and drug use. And but alcohol is not forbidden in the Catholic church, is it? So, so here's, here's the fine print, right? <laughs> um, obviously, we use wine, actual yeah. sacramental wine during communion, right? And, um, and can't the lay people like drink wine if they want? So they're, they're at, when I was a kid, they were strongly discouraged from it. If you were not baptized, had taken first communion in the Catholic church, then you were strongly discouraged from taking the bread and taking the wine, sorry, the body and the blood of Christ. Yeah. Um, you could go walk up to the front of the church and what you would do would be you'd cross your um, hands over your chest and you could receive a blessing from the deacon or the priest or whoever was administering the Eucharist. Okay. Um, but 
obviously what, you know, each family was left up to do whatever with their kids. And so I would take the communion and then I would um, skip the wine station, almost like a buffet, right? Uh, I would see other kids take the communion, the Eucharist wine, which is come to find out is um, large, largely Manischewitz wine. And not surprisingly, Catholic faith being a Judeo-Christian tradition, it comes from the Jewish practice of taking wine um, during uh, rituals. So I remember the first time I tasted it. Well, first of all, when I saw my kids my age who were under 21, I mean, that was kind of hammered into us, right? You can't drink until you're 21. Um, take the wine and then we would ask that in class. So if I am not 21, how can I take the wine during mass? And so, like I said, this is where the fine print came in. Well, thanks to the uh, power of transfiguration, where the body or the bread and the wine literally became the body and the blood of Christ, it did not break the law. It was not actually alcohol. It would not intoxicate you. So, so, yeah. so um, the rule then in terms of like drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. you could do it if it was part of the sacrament. Otherwise, you shouldn't mm-hmm. do that because it's against you the should, law. Not right, because it's would, against the Catholic Church's policy, but because was, you shouldn't yeah. drink until you're 21 according to the law. It, and it was it was against the Catholic tenet of warding off intemperance. So, you know, so what about whenever, when you're 21? Like if you're 21, so you 22, can, 23, I mean, there's no, pun- that, is there a punishment for drinking or is there- no, not at all. There is it all things in moderation. Okay. In fact, you know, that stereotype of, um, the Catholic priest who enjoys a drink or two. Yeah. And, that, a, and a cigar. That is very much. And a cigar. That is very much based in fact. Okay. Um, in fact, when growing up, I would remember we would have in, in my father's house in South Georgia, we would have our parish priest over occasionally to the house for barbecue, whatever. And he was not without his, it was either glad, it was either a beer or whiskey. I forget what his poison oh, was. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. And just, you know, kids, we were kids and we were, and it, it was understood. Yes. He's, he's not here today in his, in his, uh, priest's garb, but he's, he's still, you know, has that leadership role, but right now he's just a, an older gentleman in a polo, khaki shorts, Crocs, and sipping on a beer. Wants to enjoy like his was, night. Exactly. So, um, so that, sorry. Uh, so what about, if you want, I can talk about, you know, how sexuality was yeah, treated. So and, yeah. Us, okay. Well, yes. Tell us that. Yes. <laughs> so we all want to know that. <laughs> this was. What torture did they I, cause okay, the so, teenagers of Catholicism? <laughs> <laughs> so it was the same as in the Mormon church. Absolutely no sex until marriage, until those vows were exchanged in specifically in the eyes of the church could you consummate the marriage and only only uh to further the purpose of the family there was very a very sharp line drawn between sex and lust um and when it came to (laughs) 
I'll never forget because I had friends, you know, on the soccer team or, uh, sorry, not on uh, friends that I played soccer with in, in the off season, basically kids com- coming from other schools, uh-huh. right? I had neighbors, whatever, who went to public school. Um, and oh, at the so time, they could. yeah. So at the time they had a very watered down version of sex ed. It was very still at that time in the state of Louisiana, there was still a lot of gray area there. The laws weren't, um, they didn't exactly endorse uh, realistic sexual education, but there's some places where, you know, condoms were being wrapped on a bananas, et cetera. That was completely foreign to us in Catholic school. And, and, and the only thing taught in reference to teenage sexuality was abstinence. And we, they wheeled in a tube TV, popped in a videotape with a lady. um, I don't remember her name, but I know that the, this video was produced for and distributed to um, Baptist youth as well. Um, Because I had a cousin who was Baptist at the time. And I remember we talked about it. Very 80s doubt, um, platinum blonde, feathered hair, thick makeup. Um, and she would talk about the physicality of what happened when you neck, heavy necking and heavy petting. Um, and I don't remember if, whether that's where the video ended or that's where the teacher stopped it. But the point was, (laughs) the point was, um, even going that far was going too far. Um, because it would naturally lead to sexual intercourse which before marriage wasn't allowed and of course these videotapes they were they weren't created for adult couples they were directed at teenagers so that was the message and do you feel like most of of your peers stuck to that did they follow that did they feel compelled to i mean what would happen if you didn't if you didn't, it would word would get around. <laughs> but I mean, would you get in trouble with the church, or was there you consequences? Would get in, there were consequences in that our um, counselors, our high school, each grade was assigned a counselor. Um, you know, rumors would spread spread like wildfire, and then certain students would confide in the counselors, and then the counselors would call you in. Um, it, and this would pertain to anything, whether it was premarital sex or drinking or partying or smoking, um, hanging out with the wrong crowd, as cliche as that sounds. Um, And you would get called in and you would sit down with the counselor and chat about it. Um, So I don't know firsthand what the consequences were, but I will say this. If um, uh, we, we had girls at our school most at the time, the vast majority, I think we were actually the only one, maybe one of two of, say, the six schools that made up the so-called Catholic League in New Orleans. Uh-huh. Um, we were the one of two that had uh, girls at it. And we'd only done that ooh, six years prior to my entering the high school. So boys outnumbered girls at least two to one, if not three to one. Um, but if, I mean, how is... What's the only proof, right, of premarital premarital sex? Pregnancy. So it was very heavily skewed against the young girls that went to the school. And it happens. Yeah. Teenage girls get pregnant. Um, and there was no formal 
expulsion policy, but I knew a girl who got pregnant in, I think it was two or three grades above me. And, um, she, she took, I guess, like a health leave from it, a sabbatical. Um, she wasn't outright expelled, but she brought her baby to a basketball game because her boyfriend was playing. Oh, interesting. And she was afterwards in the following week, she was asked to essentially sign a letter of resignation. That's the, I guess the analog for it. From the school? signed a letter. Yeah. She was asked to leave the school. So, and so I don't know if it was the, by the, by sheer virtue of her getting pregnant or bringing her child to this basketball game. So it's more kind of like you're shamed more than anything. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's a, that, that's a fundamental tool of, of the Catholic faith is, I mean, original sin, right? You, you are born into the world shameful. Yeah. <laughs> like that is w- without any sort of action, whether you're smoking, drinking or having sex, you're already, you already bear something that you should be ashamed of. So, um, so when you left high school, you left high school, you went straight to college right after high school. I did. And what mm-hmm. did, you, did you go to a Catholic college? I did not. Okay, um, so you just I went to a sinful college. The, yeah, I, I went in in one of the most sinful cities on oh the planet. Oh my New gosh, York. you're destined I to, to fall away. I know, but which was funny given that I mean, while I maintained my faith in the Catholic Church as a high schooler, I also fell away from certain tenets of it. So I would I drank when you were um, in college. When I was in high school. Oh, when you were which, in high school? In high school. Gross. I know. Shame on me. Um, I, again, we... Did you ever have to talk to, to a counselor? Uh, yes, I did. In fact. <laughs> um, the word got around? Word, well, yeah, because we were idiot boys and um, we took... <laughs> so we were drinking. At, we had a, we host, I hosted a party in my house. My mother was supposed to be out of town, but that's another story. And, um, after Sounds I like it's part get another of basket- story. that's right. <laughs> after another part of the, after another basketball game, um, we, <laughs> my older, my older brother was already in college and he had a fake ID and he was able to get us liquor and beer. And we invited the, uh, cheerleaders and the dance team over and, um, we drank and played music loud and partied and, took photos on a disposable camera. Remember that? I do remember those. So I took those, you know, I went with friends to go get those photos developed. And because we were idiot teenage boys, we decided to bring those photos to school and we showed them off at lunch. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So naturally word, I mean, I don't, we were all appalled that word got back to the counselors, but obviously in retrospect, it was it would have been shocking had that had word not gotten to our counselors. Yeah, and I got called in, and yeah, and so the, probably the chief thing was that we were we were drinking, um, and the because I had had a pretty squeaky clean record up to that point, I was um, I was let off the hook so long as I destroyed the photos. 
the negatives, the And that's what they told themselves. you? Like you needed to That's what they him? told me. I, how yes. could they verify that? They, it was on the honor system. Again, I had built a lot of gold, goodwill. And this actually brings me to uh, a point to, you know, to show you how, how dedicated I was to the faith. I was uh, what's called a campus minister. So I had been vetted um, as leadership material. And the ultimate reward for this was twofold. One, during um, mass throughout the school year, there were occasions, I think at least once or twice a semester, where the entire school went to mass, whether it was at the local Catholic church or with a, in our gymnasium, we campus ministers would administer the Eucharist. Oh, You had to be an upperclassman for this privilege and you would go up and you would hand out the Eucharist, the bread or the, the wine. Well, actually we didn't have wine. That doesn't make sense. We would just have the bread. We would have the, the, the body of Christ. And so I would stand at the front and kids would queue up and I'd hand them the, the body of Christ. What and else, so that was what else did the you other do one as a minister, like as a, as a minister. So as a campus or minister, a campus that was the chief, that was the chief duty. But the other one was um, to lead what was called retreat. So once a year in every grade, you would go on an overnight trip to this, I guess it, it was an, as a, it was a camp run by our sister order, like nuns, um, out in rural Louisiana, uh, fairly isolated. I mean, obviously there were utilities, electricity, water, etc. But the idea was as a class, you went and you spent a night at this campsite. Um, well, camp is over-exaggerating was by our standards, it would be glamping. I mean, there were pavilions, there was, I there love was structure there. I, I know, I would right? I glamp any day over the, camp. <laughs> <laughs> there was running water and electricity, beds, sheets, bathrooms, the Sounds whole like time. my kind so, of camping. <laughs> yeah, oh, t- mine too, exactly. Um, so we would be in this environment and we would be, we would be led by upperclassmen and teachers uh, to strengthen our faith. It was considered part of the religion curriculum. So as I became a junior or a senior, that's, I wanted to do that. And so you would lead the other kids, you would um, share with them, you know, a lot of this involved, um, if I'm being cruel, group therapy, but we sat in a circle and we talked about issues of the day and um, you would lead that among your peers because obviously it was more effective. Was there an adult there with you? Oh yeah, oh, at all okay, times, okay. at all times. But the idea like that was, could turn into you know, Lord of the Flies if you. Uh, yeah, oh, very it. easily, right? And I mean, and during these times, they would separate the boys from the girls, and everything was was in bounds, so to speak, was fair play. You could talk about sexuality, drinking, smoking, temptation. That's kind of cool. Yeah, no, it was great, and and that's I saw I saw the value in that because I you know I'm. I'm very much an extrovert and I, and I found, I found that I had benefited from such candid conversations. So I wanted to lead other kids to that, hopefully uh, accomplishing the same goals of being more open and having a better understanding of who I was. So while all this was going on, I was drinking and partying and et cetera, um, while keeping my grades up, that was the other key thing. And then of course the, the unwritten duty of the campus minister was to lead by example every day whether you were at school or not. Um, and I, I, you know, I, 
I believe fully. Um, again, if I'm being cynical, I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I fully, not one moment, um, I, I'll never forget, one of the duties was we would travel to, let's travel, we would go to middle schools, um, potential feeder schools that would send their, whose parents uh, would send their kids to my high school. We were essentially recruiting for the high school. And during the, these presentations, I was chosen to deliver we would highlight certain aspects of every curriculum, right? There was a, a student who was in charge of highlighting the math portion, science, English lit, athletics, etc. cetera. Um, I was called on to discuss the religious aspect of the school, of, okay. of the curriculum. And so I would stand in front of an auditorium full of fourth, fifth, sixth graders, seventh graders, and tell them what it was like what religion was like at my high school. And I believed every word of it. I never once um, doubted said anything insincerely. I didn't doubt it. Um, and then, of course, like you said, in college, that kind of, well, yeah, so that's when I first... What was your downfall then? So <laughs> college. my downfall was um, being leaving that environment. Uh, the, the college the I went to was not... The leaving the bubble, mm -hmm. definitely, specifically New Orleans and specifically the Catholic community. And I was in New York. I, my school was completely secular. In fact, it made it a point to say that all religions, all faiths were welcome. Um, in the long run, I benefited hugely from that. And um, my freshman year, we took a course called Conversations of the West. I don't even know if they still have it at NYU, but the point was, it was literature and essay composition. That's essentially what it was. It was a liberal arts school. So you had to meet the core classes before you could um, start specializing and majoring in other things. And um, we studied the Bible as a literary text rather than Holy Scripture. Did you know that, that was going to happen in that class? Yes, that was laid out in the syllabus. So even before I got to my first day of class, I knew that's what I was walking into. But did it occur um, to you, like, or did you think it was going to no, not at the time. I thought um, before we got into it, I thought this is going to be interesting. And the fact is we covered other texts that were considered sacred in other religions too. Mm -hmm. um, did you cover the so Book of Mormon? Thought, oh, well, <laughs> we did not cover the Book of Mormon. Uh, what? Okay. <laughs> no, I know, right? <laughs> Big blind spot there. But, a uh, no. Huge religion yes. throughout the world. So I'm I, just surprised. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, funny enough, there is quite a Mormon presence in the Philippines, uh, thanks to all the oh, yeah. missions over there and missionaries. So I was kind of familiar with that. My family's familiar with the, the LDS church. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, so what were the things that happened in this class? Like, what what so are the, some of the things they talked about? I'm really interested. What are some of the things they went over that made you start to question everything? So the biggest thing was literature as propaganda. It was the idea that certain texts were written not only to, or not even primarily to tell a story, to give the reader an idea of his or her own origins, to join them to a greater community or a greater tradition. It was to convince them, to brainwash them, to persuade them one way or the other, to believe in the righteous cause of organization X, whether that was the government, 
the church. I mean, we started with the Odyssey. Then we went, uh, you know, Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad. Yeah. Then we went to the Aeneid by Virgil. I mean, we we covered it, and but what, that was the idea. But when they got to the Bible, it, what made you think like, oh, yes, this makes sense? Why weren't you just like, no, that's not why the Bible I, was written? I think I, I had started... Um, Questioning already? Yeah, I had started, I mean, like any kid, any, at the time I was... At the time of 9-11, I was in high school. I was a high school junior. I read headlines. And um, in fact, my personal essay to uh, NYU was, it, it was about terrorism. And, you know, I sort of, I started connecting the dots in college that had already been forming, placed. Yeah, had already been forming in high school. You know, what would drive men to do this? Well, it was their faith. And of course, I connected that to the crusades that I studied in history class right before heading into religion, right? Yeah. Um, what would drive men to slaughter entire towns of children, right? Um, and so then it just kind of snowballed from there. And what would drive people to wage war against each other to commit these acts and you know, whether it was done in the name of Zeus, Allah, Jesus Christ, it it seemed to fly in the very face of what we had been taught. Clothe thy neighbor if your neighbor is, is naked. Feed thy neighbor if thy neighbor is hungry. And never in the scripture and in our actual teachings, there was never an asterisk unless your neighbor is Muslim unless your your neighbor is gay, unless your neighbor doesn't believe in God, is an atheist. Like it, it was, so I, I, I found that. And I think all of these thoughts had already been forming, but they didn't finally coalesce into one major rejection of the church as an institution until college. The, the veil kind of lifted from my eyes when we studied the Bible in the context of literature the iliad literature and 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 other things that now we consider mythology right at what point does a religion pass from faith into mythology yeah and um i think years later so this was freshman year um and then the following i, I was lucky enough to earn a scholarship to new york or to to nyu meaning uh, i was part of a, a group called the scholar the presidential scholars which was super sweet because that meant the February of our freshman year, we got to travel to Florence. And to this day, it's one of the most formative trips in my entire life. We went into the Uffizi, um, right? The, the world famous museum that sits in Florence and the way that they have the art arranged there. And I don't think it's by accident as they start, with paintings and imagery of all of the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. And then they seamlessly transition into images of Christ. Oh, interesting. And the Christian God. And I noticed, and then again, fast forward two years later, I studied abroad in Madrid and my still to this day, my favorite museum in the world, the uh, uh, Museo del Prado. I've been there. In, oh, you've been there. Been so, there. you know, it's the same it's the most depressing thing. Walk museum these, I've ever right? been. Right. <laughs> 
It is. It's just uh, vaulted ceilings and marble everywhere. And you pass. Every room looks the same except for the art. And the art transitions seamlessly from marble statues of Poseidon you know, to wooden paintings of I Jesus didn't Christ. even notice that. Like all, I think because, so I was on a mission there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went, we went there on, you know, one of our free days. And um, I just, what I remember most about that museum is just how I felt like almost every painting was Christ on the cross, like in agony, yeah. mm-hmm. blood, Ooh. thorns, you know, him mm-hmm. carrying the cross, despair. despair. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, it's so sad. Yeah. It's, it's so, overwhelming. Yeah. It's- supremely overwhelming and that is again all those paintings were done um were commissioned by catholic nobles right but i didn't italian or french and the idea was shame the viewer it's shame i mean they were created at a time where there was no other religion by the viewer and the viewer would look at this art and say this man is on the cross there's an open bleeding wound in his side. He's got thorns on his, on his head. And I put him there. It yeah. was my sin for, he sacrificed himself. He's in this condition. Yeah. Super dark. And uh, you know, I did I mean, not notice the, like the early mm-hmm. gods transitioning. Oh yeah. But I think that's very interesting because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we could talk about, I mean, I'm so interested in this, just how religion has evolved over time. It's oh, fascinating. Yeah. Super fascinating. But were you, so at, at this time, were you still going to mass? Like, were you still going to church or I, had you kind of I stopped? I only went. Like, were you? I only, I did. Did that class, were you like done? That, that was, I, I was done. I, um, I only went to mass when my mother insisted during the school year. And I would still spend, even though I wasn't, you know, unobligated by the courts anymore. I did. I would spend my summers and Christmases with my dad and I would go mass then. And I would sit there and I would go through the motions like a good Catholic boy. But I would never, this is where, when it flipped, this is versus, this is a complete contrast to me delivering a presentation on the religion curriculum at my high school. So this was me sitting in the pew and questioning every word that came out of the priest's mouth. And was that a hard time when you were going through this? Did you find that it was pretty easy to break away from your beliefs or was it it a hard time for you? It was shockingly easy. It was like a switch had been flipped. Um, And I think, again, this was in college This is when I first uh, encountered it because I was, I was becoming what turns out to be lifelong friends. I could, the people I'm about to, uh, reference, they, I could text them right now and they would respond. Um, I was befriending people who had come from, um, Hindu beliefs, Jewish beliefs, um, Muslim beliefs, uh, Taoist, you name it. I mean, it's New York, right? Yeah. It's, it's the, the node of in international communities in America, uh, or at least the oldest one. And so, well, I guess you could argue New Orleans is older, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> the, the point being that 
you know, and I could relate to them. They all showed basic principles of humanity, you know, love for your neighbor, regardless of who that neighbor was, compassion, justice, um, uh, uh, passion too, whether it was about lacrosse or dancing or uh, uh, painting or history or politics. Everyone uh, in the, in this freshman class, we, we valued each other and we, we engaged each other on that level. Um, I think that makes it was such remote. a difference when you're leaving a religion. Mm-hmm. If you find a community quickly, it makes all mm-hmm. the difference in the world. Because oh, totally, for most then, people, their religion was their community. Yeah. And then it really it's is. really can be very traumatic to lose that and to leave it. But you luckily were in a situation where you were able to meet people that became lifelong friends, which is so most definitely, which is so great. So, so just to kind of um, wrap up, how do you feel about, about religion now and, and kind of what religion brought to your life or maybe harmed in your life? Where are you now? Where I am now is that um, I've evolved since, that shocking ease with which I left the Catholic church and I've become emotionally mature enough to recognize that just like you just mentioned, um, leaving the church left the void of what do I believe in? And I struggled with that. I've reached a point where now, um, religion to me, specifically the Catholic church is a tradition or sorry, an institution that taught me and my older brother, actually my, all my little siblings, they're still in the church. Uh, my older brother has left, but my, uh, those three siblings I mentioned earlier, whom I helped raise, they, they've all, they're all deep and deeply. So, um, values, the ones that we just talked about, compassion, justice, uh, togetherness, acceptance, charity. Um, there's a lot of um, volunteerism tied up with it, which I, I, I value tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, I, I'm grateful for that legacy, that it's left my entire family through the generations. Um, it, it does offer a nice proxy for family. When I think of going to mass, I, I think about messing with my little brothers and my little sister in the pews and elbowing them, telling jokes, whispering and giggling. I, I think about yeah, fond the memories. that we have after. Yeah. And to this day, you know, we continue to form them. Uh, we'll go to lunch afterwards and we'll just, we're just together without distractions. I mean, I have to slap their iPhones out of their hands, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's togetherness. Um, and I guess religion in general, not just the Catholic church is, is to me to, to grossly oversimplify it, uh, is to me, it's an ongoing, it's kind of the destination for that search that each of us embarks on, uh, from day one that we're aware of these things, which is why am I here? What makes me, me? 
And some people find that answer, like you pointed out earlier, it becomes part of the, the church becomes a fundamental part of their identity. And I don't begrudge anyone that everyone's got his or her own quest to, to answer those questions. Yeah. Um, who am I and how do I relate to the world? Um, and, and I love it. I love the diversity. I love, I love being able to sit back and, and witness it all. And I, and I do believe in a higher power. I just don't think it's a bearded Caucasian man who sits in the sky, um, et cetera, et cetera, that you want to pull. And I'm, again, that's not just from the Judeo Christian tradition that dates all the way back to back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, right? Yeah, um, Zeus. So, yeah, exactly. So, I, I I see value in it, and I do believe in something greater than um, each individual. And and I think we when we break bread, whether that's right after church or when we're doing pub trivia with friends or people that will become friends, we're we're all practicing that faith of humanity. I love that. Um, yes, I agree. I think a lot of us, you know, we're just trying to find our place in religion offers a place for a lot of people. So thank you so much for coming out today, Carlos. You're so welcome. Let's go in the garden. You'll find something waiting right there where you left it lying upside. On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. Intro and outro theme for this podcast is Everything Stays, a Rebecca Sugar cover by Bly Wallentine. You can find more of Bly's music at blywallentine.com. Everything stays right where you left it.